The week began with Memorial Day, and today we will continue the military focus with a discussion about United States veterans living in Indiana. So far this year, several pieces of legislation have made their way through the House and Senate. One bill requires the Department of Health to explore treatment options for veterans suffering from traumatic brain injuries. Another bars employers from discriminating against veterans. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we will talk about these measures and the changing landscape Hoosier veterans are facing. Listen and join our discussion with two representatives from the local Veterans Affairs Department after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement, offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And so far this year, we've had a lot of news about uh, veterans and ver- veteran services. <coughs> Several pieces of legislation affecting veterans in the state of Indiana have made their way through the House and the Senate. Today, we're going to discuss that legislation as long, along with some breaking news today uh, with two guests that we have in the studio. Larry Catt is with us. He is the Veteran Service Officer for Monroe County Veterans Affairs Department. John Tilford is the former Monroe County Veterans Service Officer. If you want to uh, join us on the program, please call us at 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. And I hope that a lot of people will call today. I know that uh, there's been a lot of news about about veteran services lately, and there are a whole lot of veterans out there in our audience. And so if you have any questions today, please give us a call. First, let me get to the, the breaking news. President Obama has announced that U.S. Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, Eric Shinseki, has resigned. Of course, we've been dealing with a situation of um, long wait times, um, fudged records, preventable deaths in the VA's medical system. Uh, and there's kind of a, a just a scandal that's bubbling up with the, the VA. So we're going to talk about that and a lot of other things. But I want to turn to John Tilford first. John is he's actually written a guest column for the paper that's going to run soon. So I'm going to scoop myself on this. Uh, uh, John, you have some opinions about um, – the job of the Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, Mr. Shinseki. So, you know, can you sort of go into what that, you know, what your position is on, on him and his job? Well, Bob, as you have already read, I was speaking on the assumption that Shinseki was uh, not long for that position. Mm. But he's been there, uh, what, five years, which really is above average for the last several secretaries of that. Uh, and I think uh, Mr. Uh, Peters, one of the uh, journalists working for Fox, uh, observed that uh, people are not lining up to be the next Secretary of Veterans Affairs. It's not a uh, real high, it's not a stepping stone. You know, it's not a high prestige kind of a thing. So, uh, 
Yeah, the, the first assumption I had is that uh, you can put whoever you want to there as secretary, but if you don't do something pretty major to that staff and organization, you're going to have the same problems over and over again. I think it's a systemic, both on the adjudicative claim side and on the medical side of the VA. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's an interesting point. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I, growing up and just, you know, hearing anecdotal things over the years, I don't remember ever hearing that the VA setup is, is, you know, oh, what a great thing, and it's working so well. I mean, this seems like something that's been going on for 40 years at least. I, I mean, how can – I guess I'm just amazed that the, it can be this serious and, and just almost have become something that is accepted that, gosh, the VA is just very deeply flawed. Is And, and why, John, do you think that now suddenly – do you think it's because of these deaths that have been – um, publicized, or, or what do you think is bringing this to a head? Well, families don't like to hear that, you know, dad or, or her husband or whoever passed away uh, for lack of medical attention when the goal was supposedly being met at you know, one point within 14 days and treatment within 30, or whatever the, uh, the goal numbers uh, were allegedly met and they, and they weren't being. But uh, if I could go back in time, and again, I'm an old guy, and I think decades ago, but you're talking decades ago. I am talking, yeah. Uh, when I... Uh, Came back to Indiana and worked for the federal, at that time, Veterans Administration before right. they came a, became a department. I uh, left Internal Revenue Service to come back to Indiana on a federal appointment. And then again, I left VA and went back to IRS. And different agencies have different personalities. Same federal regulations. And the VA at that time, and I suspect now, was sort of like a, well, we can tolerate this and look out for Joe. He's been a good guy in the past. And yeah, we're not real sharp on this area, but we can somehow get by. And yeah, we can kind of fudge these numbers a little bit which is not IRS at all. IRS was very ruthless, <laughs> you know. And, and again, I want to point to bad, in my opinion, bad management. And I'll, I'm, feel free, I'm sure that Larry knows a lot more about mm-hmm. the current information than I do over here. But uh, have denials which have no basis in regulations being issued to, let's say, veterans back from Vietnam. And uh, the same mistake be made over and over and over again. Over on the IRS side, one mistake from an employee on an audit, and they lose an appeal or lose a court case, and they immediately fix their system so they never get stuck with that mistake again because they want to look perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And But the VA just does the same errors over and over and over. Mm-hmm. In your experience, who uh, were the employees of the VA? Were they retired military? Were they uh, civilians? Who who made up the staff? Well, it's changed over the uh, last decades. When I was there in the uh, mid and late 70s, you still had World War II veterans working there, and Korean War veterans, and there was a new wave coming in, along with me, of Vietnam veterans. Those pretty much just stopped, and uh, you can you can kind of look at your historical calendar and peaks of sure. population of war veterans coming back from service and see that. And uh, Larry, again, will correct me if I'm wrong here, but now VA being a civilian agency, it has a slightly higher percentage of veteran employees than others, but not that much higher. So when uh, Veteran Smith calls in and uses terms like M60 or 155 or these kind of things, which mean are very obvious to former military people, the new employee out of Podunk University has no clue what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. They just do not understand. And especially the guys with PTSD find that very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And that's when they hang up the phone and you you lose them. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Larry Katz here, too. And if, if any of you know the two of these guys, Larry and, and John, I mean, Larry's, he's the quiet, wise one, and John's the, well, John, John's the wise one, too, but 
but he's not as quiet. So, Larry, I want to give you an opportunity to join the, the conversation and, and talk a little about uh, you know, your observations of what's happening right now. Well, I think the uh, pressure's definitely been on to make some changes, but I don't think a change at the top is going to get to the problem. I think it's been <clears throat> buried in VA in those locations where it's taking place for a long time, and uh, no one really wanted to uncover it. Uh, a lot of that has to do with setting standards that can't be met. If you set a standard... They'll they'll get they'll show you they're making the standard, but that doesn't mean they're going to make it. The uh, army tried that for a while with zero defects. Well, you came out with a report that showed zero effects, defects, but is that really really what you got? And uh, it's it, to eliminate the guy at the top is really not doing anything but window dressing on the whole problem. Somebody has to get down, and they have to be able to ferret these guys out. And I, I've seen uh, a lot of things. I think in a bureaucracy, uh, they're supposed to add the continuity and the expertise when the new appointee comes in. But sometimes they, they have their own agenda. And I know Shinseki came up with several ideas, that some that I'd seen that never made it. And I think they get stifled down within the system. But he's the one that... Uh, speeded claims up by taking the claim form from 20-some pages down to five. He had the presumptive claims for Agent Orange where there used to be a big uh, goat rope, so to speak, to go through to prove that the guy was actually sprayed and in the location when it happened and all that. So he's done a lot of things to speed things up, and I think there are other ideas that he probably... Uh, wanted to move along, but I I doubt that he was aware that all these problems even existed, and I think it was uh, obviously concealed. Mm -hmm. And that's where you have to get to is those middle guys. Congress has kind of a short memory, and I think Mm -hmm. that once they've replaced him, unless somebody keeps blowing the horn, that they'll kind of forget that there was a problem in the VA. I know when I was out at some of the ceremonies over Memorial Day, I had several guys come up and volunteer their opinion. They're quite happy with most of them with the treatment they get at Routabush, and I I can't tell you the number of people that talk to you about how impressed they are with things up there. And everybody, every organization has problems, but uh, VA has had a lot of these situations, and I think they're still out there in, in different areas in the rating. Indiana does not do very well as far as... Uh, the way they handle claims, the length of time they spend on claims, and that sort of thing. Uh, the fully developed claims come along, and that's speeding things up. But again, you've got a situation where you can become flooded with all these claims that are supposed to move through in a fairly short time frame. If they don't, if they're not going to make it, it's easy enough to say, well, you didn't have one document in here, it was lost, whatever. Instead of getting on the fast train out of here, now you've been moved over to a slow boat to China. Uh-huh. And so they can always manipulate the system if, if the subordinates don't feel that they can come forward with problems and have them addressed seriously and not be punished for bringing it forward. I think it's, it'll, it'll never end. I guess for people not familiar with the system like myself, I don't understand what the advantage or the – the gain is by slowing these claims down. 
They don't want to slow them down. Uh, they they want to have them going through fast. But in order to get all the documentation, there's a lot of stuff required for any kind of claim. You know, and we're talking about compensation claims for disabilities. Uh, a fully developed claim, people like myself or the veteran himself has sent in one that he said is fully developed. There's all the medical records. There's everything you're going to need to address that claim and make a decision, you won't have to go out and gather any other documents mm-hmm. or any other data. And okay, and so we know that all VA has this backlog. We're going to reduce them by using fully developed claims. We'll get them through and things will move fast. But when you start getting flooded with those claims, and I think they're starting to see that now because they were really working very well, what are you going to do? You've got 25 claims here and Ten of them are supposed to be finished today. There's no way it's going to happen. Well, oh, look at this one. It doesn't have everything I need. So now I put it on the slow boat, and who's to say that the 214 was missing, the medical records were missing, whatever. And and the pressure's on the guy. It's this many days or you failed. Well, he's going to figure out a way to either get it done or to escape from the rating scheme. Mm-hmm. John? Well, Larry's touching on this, and I totally agree with what he's saying. And again, he's much more current than I am, but I'm concerned about the uh, quality repercussions when they have such pressure. And, and we're talking primarily now the adjudicative, the green eye shade kind of people, the, uh, the claims examiner kind of people. Such pressure to move cases to, to dig out from underneath that huge uh, backlog, which peaked at what, right around 800-some-odd thousand cases were, were over age at one point a little over a year ago. As Larry says, if the metric appears to be performance appraisals, how many can you move? How many are you getting off your desk? Well, you can get them off the desk by doing the right way. Get them off your desk by doing them the quick way, by asking for something that's already there. It's a quick way to get rid of a case. Mm-hmm. By turning somebody down is, is quite often an easier thing to do than to accept something by, by digging further and coming up with a good rationale to help out a poor widow, you know, something like like this. Mm-hmm. And you'll see the same again, mistakes we alluded to earlier being, being done again and again. I think, out of pressure just to move those cases. Mm-hmm. And it ends up being, just to be blunt about it, it's obvious to us on the outside looking in, the overall workload increases. When, when you make that many errors, you, these things are going to come back and bite you in appeal. You'll get them back and work them again, and, and it makes the agency uh, look bad. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a sad repercussion of the single-minded push for moving those cases, getting them out. And again, I'm thinking uh, whack-a-mole management's expression I like to use. If, if, if some area, and the VA does, has done this for years, Something hits the news, and guaranteed, then about a week or two later, they'll come out with, you can almost, you know, like, put the words in their mouth or the words are already there. So whatever it is will be our number one priority, and they say that again and again. I don't know how many number one priorities they've had. It gets kind of ridiculous at a time. But what happens is they'll emphasize that, and then let's say the appeals team in Indianapolis were pulled off, uh, like last year, to work regular claims. Well, what happened to all the appeals? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Since now the crisis is in appeals. <laughs> so they're going to be pulling people off of other things to do work appeals for a while. This is, the, and of course, you have training issues and work assignment issues. Rather than just doing things the right way the first time and trying to make a rational organization match their workload, it's always, you know, crisis de jour kind of a thing. I'm sure this is a gross oversimplification, but it sounds like they don't have enough bodies to get the job done. Why don't they train more people to process claims? And in the short run, you've got to take people off work to be instructors and train the new people you bring in. But when I was working at the regional office late 70s, we had 320 people. 
And uh, when I checked, uh, when I came back to Larry's job here, caught a couple of decades later, he had 160. Now, they'd lost some functions. That That's true. and But still, they, they were not staffed enough. And it gets into, I think Congress has proven itself willing to provide the resources when they're asked. And the service organizations, the American Legion and DAV and VFW, mm-hmm. every year go there saying, you need this much more money. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the VA is too shy to ask for it sometimes. And that does get back to the director mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the central office. Mm-hmm. I even like the name central office. You know, and they, <laughs> and they, they try to manage from D.C. and they'll send out mandatory things to do and all these address these our new number one crisis where we send out all these messages. Well, the poor people in the regional office sometimes can't implement those things. And the people there in D.C. are out of touch with what's really happening in, in the field, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It just reminds me of Alabama. You know, Albania, Romania, or North Korea. I mean, that just does not work. Mm-hmm. It's uh, not not managed all that well. All right. We're talking about uh, issues facing veterans and, of course, the Veterans Administration, which has been in the news. If you have questions or comments or experiences you want to share with us, please give us a call, 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and we have a call from AJ, and AJ's in Bloomington. AJ, hi there. Hey, Enjoying go. The conversation. Thank you. I have one real quick uh, idea that I think could be done, implemented pretty quickly, and that might improve veterans' health care a little bit. I know the system has a lot of people in it, and it is pretty beleaguered now. But if we could absorb, if the system could absorb another five hundred and thirty-six. Uh, people and their families and provide health care to them, that would be the members of Congress. And we would, we would if, if we could immediately pass a law that said the Cadillac health care uh, plan that is now offered to members of Congress on our dime is can stay intact, but the care can only be given at veterans hospitals in Washington, D.C. and across the country. If we could do that with a stroke of a pen, I think maybe we'd see some improvement in the healthcare system, um, and I just I want to say, as a civilian, uh, no matter how I feel about the wars we fight, and I feel very strongly about them, uh, our treatment of veterans is shameful, and it's also historical, and it's also bipartisan. Ever since, mm-hmm. since since uh, you can go farther back, but you go back just to World War One veterans who were who, who have to be held in great esteem for what they what they did. And they had to march on Washington and, yes, occupy Washington uh, to get the bonuses that they were promised. And they were met with tear gas and bayonets. So let's, let's not look back with, um, you know, rose-colored glasses at, at the way, at how we used to do right by veterans and then and say that, well, something's gone wrong with the system. Something's wrong with the system entirely. And uh, I think this, these things should be made known to every 18-year-old who is being recruited into the military with with a with a rock video and 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 talk about you know playing video games. Uh, they ought to know what's at the back end of it. And uh, thanks for your service. And uh, I'm enjoying the discussion. Thank you very much. All right, AJ. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you, AJ. I think uh, John may have something he wants well, to add. Well, there's too many things to agree with <laughs> after AJ. The uh, the idea sounds great, of course. I kind of doubt it's going to happen because Congress have to vote on them. Uh, but I think it would be a wonderful uh, way to, to enforce that uh, quality of service for, for veterans if their own uh, you know, families were at stake here, so to speak. The uh, other aspect is back on the, uh, the bonus war 
And, of course, that was Doug MacArthur, who was using the tear gas and the bayonets against the old World War, II, World War I veterans who were back waiting for that bonus during the Depression. And then the last point about Congress is the, you know, overlapping couple points here, the uh, percentage of veterans in Congress has been declining mm. for years. And we're starting to see a few Iraq and Afghanistan veterans in Congress and the Senate now. Well, Congress, at least the House. But um, not that many percentage-wise. And it kind of makes sense because only 1% of the population is involved in the volunteer military now. Uh-huh. So your base is smaller than it was in, in let's say, 16 million in World War II, what, roughly 6 million in Korea, et cetera. So uh, the fewer veterans we have in Congress, the less they're going to even understand what, what the pressures are and what's at stake here. And when we say the uh, one thing I think we're all thinking of is, gosh, the medical side, we're talking life and death for some of these veterans. Well, those are the veterans who were risking their lives mm-hmm. for the nation, mm-hmm. which makes it really poignant. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a sad situation, and I really like that solution. That is going to happen, but I think it's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, you want to add anything? Um, not really. I, I, You know, I think, like I say, Radebush seems to do a pretty good job up there. Uh, I think it's a shame that people really don't have it in mind how much these veterans go through because there's so few people involved. It's not like Vietnam where everybody was under kind of the threat of the draft. You had an interest. You had neighbors. Uh, And you see these guys walking around. Some of them look pretty good shape. But I can tell you there's lots of them that are not in good shape, that they've had their life changed not for the better. And it'll be that way for the rest of their lives. They undergo a lot of things. I mean, like this PTSD. Um, I actually worked with a guy that was in World War II and got him PTSD, uh, uh, an award for that. Uh, an award's not the correct term. But anyway, uh, and we see a lot of these guys that walk around. People think they're, they're on a free ride or whatever. And I can tell you, most of them that are compensated – They'll never make up for what they've lost. It's mm-hmm. just, it's a shame. And uh, the idea that there's some disconnect between the civilians and the, uh, the the military and veterans, what they go through, you know, there was everybody was sticking a, a ribbon on their car. That that goes so far, but it doesn't really. And I think within the in VA, we're dealing with people that have a disconnect between them and veterans. And I think when uh, a few years ago they realized there was a shortage and they started bringing on a lot of people, uh, we could see a difference in the way that claims and things were handled. Uh, They obviously didn't understand a lot of terminology or actually what was involved in uh, in the war, and and that's kind of frustrating for veterans to get this kind of stuff to think that somebody's up there supposed to be helping me out, and he doesn't even know what I've been through. Mm-hmm. So uh, all that uh, adds to it. Again, though, I, I want to say that uh, while there's medical problems all over, I guess, the country, and I'm sure Routerbush, just like some of the civilian hospitals, they have their share of problems, too, that on the whole, I'm telling you, the veterans that come back from there tell me that they have really had Class A treatment, and I think that majority of the people would say that for for Routabush, which has not always been true. All right. We're going to take a short break. We have two phone calls, and I'm going to ask them to be patient. We'll get to them uh, after the break. We're talking about the Veterans Administration and just issues involving veterans in general. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Communications. More information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at WFIUNews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we are talking about uh, veterans' issues today with uh, two guests here in the studio. Larry Catt is Veterans Services Officer for the Monroe County Veterans Affairs Department. John Tilford used to have that job. He was a Veterans Affairs Veterans Service Officer in Monroe County. He's had a whole lot of different jobs with uh, the VA and other veterans organizations. We're also going to be joined uh, on this part of the show um, by uh, Jackie Wolarski, who is the second district congresswoman from Indiana. She's going to be joining us, so we'll we'll be uh, getting her on the phone soon. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We're going to go to the phones, and Aaron from southern Indiana has been very patient with us. Thank you, Aaron. You're on? No, Karen. Karen. All right. Thank you. Sorry. I have worked in healthcare for 30 years, and I want to tell you that healthcare has changed a lot. We used to be of the opinion, um, this was not good, but when I trained for my medical training, we kind of had this attitude like, we're doing you a favor by taking care of you. And we didn't ever say that, but when there were long lines, we were kind of like, well, it's too bad. If you want us to take care of you, that's what you're just going to have to put up with. And I look back on that, and I'm kind of ashamed, but that was just the mindset in hospitals. And I still work in a large hospital in South Central Indiana, but it is so different now because it's all about uh, quality care, Uh, not just because it is the right thing to do, but it's all about competition and patient satisfaction, and that's going to be linked to reimbursement. So things have really changed. But I must comment, uh, my father was in the VA system. It was 2007. Um, it was in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I accompanied him to a VA hospital uh, after he had had a surgery. I can't, uh, I don't know how long it took him to get his appointment because he was out of state. But I accompanied him to this urology clinic in this large VA hospital, and I was shocked. Uh, there were long lines. Uh, they didn't seem particularly interested in hurrying and getting people registered in prior to their appointment. Um, I had a question and walked up to the window, and they told me get to the back of the line. You know, you have to get to the back and wait your turn, which was about something else. Um, it was just nothing but rude treatment. Uh, we were there way past our appointment time. My father finally got to the window, finally got registered. We went to the next hallway and realized they'd given us the wrong person's paperwork. 
a HIPAA violation. So I went back to the window and tried to exchange the paperwork, and they told me to get to the back of the line again. This is the type of treatment. It was a flashback to how healthcare used to be. And it occurred to me that in the VA system, um, and a lot of my father was pretty much indigent. Um, he did have, you know, Medicare, but um, it was that same mindset we used to have. And then it occurred to me, what is their incentive to do better? Do they have any competition? Um, is there any, comp- you know, any reason to have high quality, except that it's the right thing to do? Um, and I thought, you know, maybe uh, the reason that they are stuck in that time is because they don't have to have high patient satisfaction, and they've got this constant supply of um, patients, so they don't have to compete. Hmm. And I fear that that's kind of one of the problems on the lower level of when they're actually getting in and getting treatment. All right, any reaction from our panelists? John? Well, I've had the opposite experience. Of course, it's only anecdotal, and I'm only one person. But again, as Larry's talking about Radebush, the VA Medical Center in Indianapolis, the best pre-surgical screen I've ever had in my life. Uh, had a couple of minor problems after some procedures I had done. They res- resolved quickly. And there were lines, and I had to wait for an hour or two on occasion. But uh, was treated. I couldn't have been treated any better. And um, again, I realize things go bad, you know, in any any organization. I think what we may be touching on, though, in terms of uh, motivation, are some of these fictions we, we've heard of uh, you can't fire government employees, which is hogwash because I've done it, uh, and some other, other positions have had other places. Uh, what you sometimes have is bad management that are gut less and don't want to fire bad employees or, or motivate people in, in more pleasant ways to motivate people with the satisfaction of taking care of those people who have risked their lives for their country. But uh, I'm sure there's some really horrible things happen. One, one fellow I helped one time had his, uh, who later on was 100% service-connected disabled on his ultimate rating, now deceased, by the way. He described being at a, a VA medical center and, and having a person take his VA medical card and said, you're not entitled to this, and cutting it up in front of him. That guy's lucky to be alive because the gentleman was a pretty good-sized fellow, and he had some severe problems, as would any normal person going to war and coming back. They, you don't remember the same from that. But the uh, courtesy aspect and motivation aspect is uh, sounds like it was sorely, certainly sorely lacking in that facility at that time. Mm-hmm. But Indianapolis is uh, I've never seen that. Really, have never seen that. Some of the procedures not exactly perfect, but uh, can't expect perfection. No, no not anywhere. Um, so we're going to go to the phones again, and, and I want to say we're we're going to be. Um, Joined now by the U.S. Representative Jackie Walorski from the Second Congressional District in Indiana, and she's on the House Committee for Veterans Affairs. Welcome, Representative. Thank you for being Thank here. You so, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Right. So uh, we, we wanted to, uh, you know, ask you to to comment on the the breaking news this morning that that uh, Secretary Shinseki uh, has resigned. Well. I'm grateful that the secretary did, and, you know, I've said before, he's an honorable man. He's done incredible things in his lifetime, and the, the nation is definitely grateful. This is just a situation that, you know, it deserves fresh eyes. It deserves fresh leadership, and given what we've uncovered, given what the inspector general reports have shown, you know, we went from 23 VAs around the country to 46 that have systematic failures um, with this issue of, you know, cooking the books and uh, two, two lists and you know, the long waiting line and, and things like that. Um, but I just want to, you know, go on record and make sure everybody understands that when you're dealing with an organization as large as the VA with over 300,000 employees, that this is just step one 
And, you know, nobody should be shouting victory. Nobody should in, in, interpret this in, um, with, with any political eyes. This has been uh, a bipartisan issue. It needs to stay a bipartisan issue. And I would tell you, I think it's a sad day for America. And I think that, um, but it also opens the door for us to take the next step now, which is bring in new leadership and then begin the investigation process. Because I will, I can almost guarantee you that at the end of this long nationwide investigation, there will be criminal charges filed. Because what we learned in the last, um, in, in the last Inspector General report was there's a group of people that nobody knows who they are, but we'll find out. Who, deliberate, who deliberately created a scheme by which veterans were not taken care of and some died. And, you know, there has got to be um, accountability for that, and that's going to be our continued job on Congress on oversight is to make sure now that we fulfill, get to the root of this. Because if we don't get to the root of it, no matter who comes in as the next leader, they'll be set up for failure and the same thing will happen. Well, I'm sure you weren't able to listen to the first part of our show, but we have uh, John Tilford and Larry Catt here, and they're both veteran services officers uh, in Monroe County, uh, one current, one former. And both of them said pretty much the same thing that you just said, that it doesn't necessarily matter who comes in at the top, that there are a lot of other problems that are within the system that need to be addressed. You know, there really are. And, and, you know, I'm a freshman, so I've been on the community for about 18 months. And this isn't just – it's not just this issue. There are other systemic major failures that have to do with the security of the website, protecting our veterans from identity theft, protecting our veterans, you know, with with health issues. And, you know, what the new leader, whoever that may be, when they come in, you know, there's a wide array of uh, systemic failures here. So we're just talking about one today. But um, that's why, you know, you really have to get to the bottom of it, to stay committed, to stay focused on rooting it out so that we can move forward with a clean system rebuild the trust between America and our veterans and the VA and, you know, once and for all, reset these wrongs that have been done and right the wrongs. And that's going to take some time. And um, it certainly isn't just about who's at the head. This is a step in the right direction. Clearly, you're very motivated to to make this change happen. How do you how would you judge the rest of Congress's uh, level of motivation to to really affect this change? Well, I don't think there's been the urgency. Um, We've never seen urgency. Um, on the side of the VA, we haven't seen a whole lot of urgency on the side of the president. Um, but on the committee itself, it's been very, very urgent. You know, we have asked for documents 18 months ago that we still haven't received. And we are the jurisdictional oversight committee for that organization. So it's very frustrating, I think. And, and probably the people closest to it are folks like us that are on the committee because we've been so over-the-top patient. And, you know, for the first time in 30 years, we had to subpoena documents last week. So, it, and, you know, and I got to credit I think the credit on all of this thing, if there is credit when it comes to putting up the VA, is the veterans themselves. They've been willing to come in to the committee and testify and share the story. And they're heartbreaking. You know, your heart breaks for some of the things that have happened here. And you can't bring people back that are gone, and you can't bring people back and save their life when they have stage 4 colon cancer that metastasizes in their body. And, you know, they're not going to be here in two years by no fault of their own. So, you know, these are huge issues, but I do believe that there needs to be um, a real uh, urgent appeal now to keep moving this thing till we get to the root of it and not politicize it. Mm-hmm. I want to ask John Tilford uh, if he has a question for you. I'm not sure I have a question. I certainly agree with that uh, lack of transparency with the VA because if you're outside the VA and you want to know something about what goes on inside, you've got a real problem. It seems that uh, Shinseki is obviously what appear to be extremely isolated 
from the field and only getting information carefully filtered through and processed. As Larry mentioned earlier, the old zero defects kind of syndrome. We're going on the parallel with the body count in Vietnam being inflated and losing, focusing on the metric rather than the real mission. But uh, totally agree that the, mm-hmm. the not getting information out of the VA that's that's usable is probably uh, well, it's got to be critical, especially especially well, the oversight function from that committee. That that is the you know to, to not be able to get information there is just really shattering. That's that's unbelievable. Yeah, and you know, guys, I got to run. I apologize, okay, but I just sure. want to say that. Um, don't forget the greatest ally in this nation in changing policy is the American people. Mm-hmm. And as long as the American people and, and folks like you continue to talk about this, continue to educate the population, and I'll do the same, we will get to the bottom of it. It's just a, But I'm telling you, the folks involved in this have to stay focused and keep politics out of it. This is a bipartisan move for the sake of our veterans, and it should not be caught up in politics. And with that, i got to run. I apologize. Thank you very much Thanks for, for joining us. Okay, thank you, guys. Thanks we, for doing what you do. Sure. We appreciate it very much. Bye-bye. That was uh, U.S. Representative Jackie Walorski from the 2nd District of Indiana. She's also a member of the House Committee for Veterans Affairs. John, did you want to answer? Well, I've got a kind of a nagging fear in the back of my mind here that we try to legislate ethics or try to legislate motivation, and that, that never works. What happens is, uh, well, rarely works, I guess, is you get even more burdens placed on the agency, more reporting kind of requirements. It might make it even harder to cure the problems. In the, it just seems like the problems are... What ethics, motivation, uh, doing the right thing. If you had the right right people in those second and third tier of, of management, this this mm. wouldn't be happening. You would be faking numbers. Wouldn't be concealing mm-hmm. uh, people dying. This kind of things. As we've already alluded to, criminal activity. Eighteen that, months un- to get documents that they've wow. subpoenaed, and that's that's amazing. The, the Veterans Affairs Committee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have yeah. uh, we, we have a lot of people waiting to talk to us. But let me just say that uh, if you want to get in line, eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside the local area. If you can't get on the phone, you could go to the live chat, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Now, Lyle from Brown County may have set the record for patience. He's been waiting for us for about 15 minutes. So, Lyle, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. I just wanted to add something real quick for uh, consideration. Um, a huge number of Vietnam War veterans are now in their 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And health problems are becoming chronic and serious, some of them related to the war and some not. You add that to the fact that the Afghan and uh, Iraq wars were fought by fewer soldiers who were constantly on call, some doing three or four tours of duty. Today there's a, a lot higher percentage of veterans that are sick as a result of the, uh, the, those last two wars from the stress level. They, and this, this has created a, a huge tidal wave of needs in a short time for an organization that was formed to take care of veterans of, the, of World War II and the Korean conflict. So that ought to be considered when people are trying to place blame. We need to, we need to find the answer, but uh, place and blame is, should be a result of finding a good answer. Mm-hmm. All right. To say. Hey, I appreciate it, Lyle. Appreciate it very much. All right. So let's go now to uh, Stan from Bloomington. Stan? Been enjoying the program, and uh, I must say, personally, I've had nothing but the best kind of service and friendliness up at Rattlebush. But I, I have to ask why the few veterans that are left in service on the Hill haven't taken the kind of interest they should, especially, I think, of John McCain, who's quick to talk about war. He should have had a great interest in our returning veterans, and I don't remember ever reading or hearing him talk about it. But thank you for the program. All right, Stan. Thanks a lot. Either one of you, can you speak to what... Um 
Senator McCain has. Well, McCain did come out mm-hmm. favoring, a, obviously, the change in the secretary. And he's, he's concerned, and good heavens, I would never want to criticize McCain after what he went through right. with the Hanoi Hilton and turning down the chance to come home early and, and refuse that. That's uh, touching. Uh, I think Lyle had a very good point uh, earlier, too. Uh, but, uh, no, I can't. Why Congress does what it does or doesn't do, I can't, uh, can't speak to that. But, again, I have that fear to lose a short-term kind of thing, put on a show, so much is motivated by, uh, by politics, as you well know, and not by sincere um, hope for change. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go now to Randy from Bloomfield. Randy? Hello, how are you doing? Hey, doing great. Well, uh, I, I'm going to call on behalf of a good friend of mine, and we will call him Bone. Bone? Was, okay, yeah, go right ahead. He was a medic and a field medic in both Vietnam and Korea, and he was 18 when he was in Korea, and then a fine young strapping young man in Vietnam after that. And we learned that you don't scream medic because the first person whose head pops up gets blown off. But the thing of it is, this guy tells me that he has to go to the VA hospital for a group meeting every week to attend and collect his money for his PTSD. So I didn't believe him, all right? I rode (laughs) along with him, and I went for the ride. I said, show me what you're talking about. And they talked about current events, the current administration, and they sit in this group, and they hash out their differences between political parties. And it has nothing to do with the war that they were fighting back then. And... The VA lines these people up at a window to collect their money, like as if they didn't attend the meeting, they weren't worthy of getting their money. But let me uh, let me go, let me turn to Larry and John and see what their reaction is to this, Larry. Well, an award for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is not dependent upon any kind of meeting. That decision is made, and they get a monthly check depending on the level of disability that has been determined. Uh, Going to a meeting is a voluntary thing. I think some of them are very good. Uh, They have these vet-to-vet meetings here in Bloomington. They're around other places. They don't dictate where you go to those meetings uh, I think that you need to get in a group and like he talked about it's more of a political discussion uh, some have a strict requirement and I don't know which ones they are to tell oh, you the truth the VA hospital Well, the, the VA hospital that's what uh, I'm talking about hold on let, let John react He's well, this is more than a year ago the, the window you're talking about is the travel pay booth what I suspect and that's uh, where the person has an appointment from the VA, and they show up for the appointment. They get paid for their gas money to and from. That's not any, got anything to do with what Larry's talking about, the compensation for the 30, 50, 70, or 100% disability on PTSD. That That's set by statute. So sounds like it's a, it's a travel check. That's what that is. And some of the groups, though, that meet or strictly have uh, combat veterans, and I think – if you've got PTSD, it doesn't do you good to be in a meeting with people that have never been there and don't have it. They don't exactly. understand. Exactly. But, but there are vet-to-vet groups. Uh, if 
you wanted to call into our office, I'm sure we could get him hooked up with somebody a lot closer than uh, here's, Indianapolis. Here's another question, and this is the second part of my question. I've also noticed that the VA hospital is paying for veterans to have sex change operations. So on the taxpayer's bill, we're paying for sex change operations at the VA hospital. Well, that's something. I, I don't know if anybody in here can answer now, that or why, react to that. Why are we paying for sex change operations? Well, you know, that's just not something we can get into today. I think we're going to have to move on, Randy. I appreciate your call, though. All right, let's go to Ron, who's in Plainfield. Ron? Hello. Hey, Ron, go ahead. Oh, thanks. Uh Yes, I've uh, been studying my paternal genealogy for about 25 years now, so I have quite a quite a bit of record on uh, the family. And all of the men in my family have served, not all of the men, but the men in my family have served in every conflict war in the United States since the Revolutionary War. Uh, my great-great-great-grandfather was a wounded veteran for the War of 1812, served under General Harrison, helped build Fort Meigs, Ohio and fought against Tecumseh and Prophet. I have documentation of from the National Archives of his making at least four attempts to receive property that they were promised by being veterans of that war. They, he finally received his hundred acres that he was promised at the age of 78. And that's just another example of what, <laughs> what, what happens to veterans. Uh, I, had, I had another uh, distant cousin who was a veteran of the World War One, and during the Vietnam era, he developed cancer for the second time. Rather than fight the go through the bureaucracy of dealing with VA hospital and interfering with the Vietnam veterans, possibly taking one of their positions, he hung himself. I myself am a veteran of the Vietnam era. I applied for a copy of my DD-214 six months ago electronically and have yet to receive it. So, Can you, can you tell me uh, what, what is that form? What are you applying for? Separation form. Okay. Sep- yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's, it's just a typical government-run bureaucracy. That's what we're dealing with. And the only ones that really seem to care about veterans, in spite of all the flag-waving, all the speeches, are other veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, John? Thanks well, for taking my call. Sure. Well, thank sure. you. That's quite a family history you have there, and I appreciate your sacrifice as well as your, your as you say, your relatives. Yeah. That's, that's inspiring. The uh, Back in the motivation, trying to motivate people to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I always go back to uh, Melvin Biddle, Mel Biddle, Medal of Honor winner. Out of Anderson, Indiana, raised roses for a hobby, and during the Battle of Bulge, I think he killed twenty nine Germans single handedly to to save his own, you know, squad. But he was one of my supervisors at that time at the Veterans Administration, and uh, I did a little counseling regarding uh, school benefits and thought I'd done a great job and was kind of smiling to myself. And he came up and just chewed me up one side and down the other because I hadn't counseled this guy. He's had to convert his. Uh, servicemen's group life insurance, the veterans group life insurance, or something that I'm sure neither he nor I really knew that much or cared that much about. But Mel and Biddle wanted to make sure that every veteran that came in that regional office had full service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I should say, that, you know, every county in the state, right, so anybody who's listening to us in Indiana, every county in the state has a veterans service officer, mm-hmm. correct, Larry? Yes. 
There, and the amount of service you may get is sometimes dependent on the number of dollars that that county feels that they can put forward. There's no uh, set uh, amount that they have to have. Uh, for example, we're, we're, we do pretty well here in Monroe County. There are some places that have one person that may not even be paid and has uh, you call for an appointment. Some offices are pretty well stocked. Uh, but there is someone there, and if they can't take care of you, they can certainly get you in contact with someone else. One of the difficulties I might add that we have is because uh, we're a county office, we get our direction from the Indiana Department of Veterans Affairs, we don't have any real <clears throat> clout with VA. When we call up there, there's some things that we can do- have done to try to get access, but so often we're told... Uh, that's uh, confidential information, and we can't tell you, even though we may have been the one that put together the confidential information and sent it to them. Uh, we are going through a lengthy accreditation process that will allow us supposedly access into that. But that's one of the frustrations of being in a county office is sometimes it's hard to get uh, information. They do have a hotline for us, and, and there's some other accommodations. But a lot of people think we're directly tied in. We have uh, computers that access their computers, and we don't. We're pretty much standalone. But we can get the job done for you, and if we can't, let us know, and, and we will get it eventually. All right. And you can go to that uh, the website, the state um, Veterans Affairs website. There's a map of the counties, uh, Indiana, with all the counties. You can click on the county, and your the phone number for your office will come up. So. And there's a wealth of information that you can get just by Googling. You can probably find out anything you ever wanted to know and more by uh, just hitting the websites and getting into that. There's a lot of uh, misinformation that floats around. Mm -hmm. We hear that all the time, like everybody's got a story to tell about somebody that's getting away with this or didn't get away with that. uh, But... uh, we, we, we will tell you the true stuff. We are not selling anything, and we're there to help veterans. And uh, if you're having a problem, let us know. And we've got about three minutes to go, and I, I just wanted to bring this up because we've had two stories in the paper in the last month, actually, in the month of May, about a young men who came back from Afghanistan, and both of them killed themselves. One was 27 years old. One was 24 years old. And I think, uh, you know, again, I think, John, you said that, uh, kind of under your breath, 40 to 50 percent of people who are the, coming back from these wars have and some. Larry, Larry touched on it, or one of the callers did, the uh, uh, percentage of, of disability claims from the current wave of Afghan and Iraqi is a higher percentage than in the past. Mm-hmm. It was in around 17 percent out of uh, Vietnam, I think. And some people look at that as, oh, these are people looking for the dole and this kind of stuff. Well, no, it's because you keep running them back through a bad situation over and over and over again, as Larry's pointed out. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're never going to be the same physically and, and mentally. So it's not, not surprising. It's uh, mm-hmm. horrible when it's manifested in, the, in suicides. Yeah. Larry? Everybody in the war zone is not going to see the same level. There will be people there that their uh, life wasn't that bad, but there are plenty of them that have seen and done uh, things that they wish they could forget about. And I think just the visuals of what you would see would be enough to test most normal people's mind. And uh, some people deal with it differently. And but um, th- and I think that's one of the frustrations these guys have. They can't talk to anybody because you can't, no matter how vivid your description is of what you saw, what was done over there, 
you can't convey that. There's a certain frustration trying mm-hmm. to tell somebody what it was like. Mm-hmm. Most of these guys that really were in the heavy stuff don't say anything. They, mm-hmm. There's nobody they can really talk to other than another vet. Mm-hmm. John? I wanted to focus real quickly on the Shinseki's replacement, whomever it might be, and uh, go back to Colin Powell, who spoke out here at uh, the Obanian Institute at Ivy Tech, not served by his staff very well in 2003 when he pitched the Iraq invasion. And it came back to haunt him. And here we have another good officer, four-star, Shinseki, great guy, Purple Heart, part of his foot blown away in Vietnam. Uh, for the only guy to stand up to Rumsfeld and tell him, no, you better have more people going into Iraq. And now he's been undercut by bad staff. And the only, well, who knows? You need an inspirational, butt-kicking type next administrator, uh, next secretary. And I'm thinking Omar Bradley after World War II and Max Cleland after Vietnam. We're in that mold. But other than that, you, I mean, you know, start to name the secretaries of the, of the Department of Veterans Affairs. It's kind of a hard thing. You have some, mm-hmm. some people in there who are not, you know, maybe they were veterans in, the, in, you know, in a way. That's fine. But they didn't, didn't serve the veterans mm-hmm. very well. And so you need an inspirational, hard, firm type person, not, not a more passive, insulated person. Somebody gets mm-hmm. out there in the field and takes a look for themselves. I think you'd be a good choice. All right. We are out of time. I want to want to thank our two veteran guests today, Larry Cat and John Tilford, also uh, for producer Lacey Scarmana, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. You can find podcasts of this and other WFIU programs at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement, offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu.